most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, Joel, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined by my friend Terry Phillips. Terry, how's things going? Lovely. Good. Like that? Did you shave off the beard for any specific? Re- just because the heat, right? Uh, yeah, it was. It's a uh, really toasty here. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking maybe you had an acting part or something, or. Yeah. Well, you know, for for radio, they uh, we we have a, a wardrobe um, department, but um, hair and makeup is uh, on our own. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why I did that. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking to myself, boy, you'd make a really good Charles Xavier on uh, uh, X Men. So <laughs> they're looking for one to replace Patrick Stewart. So well, I'll, I'll call my agent and have him put in a. I think you should. You have such a great voice too. I think it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, we have Catherine Fuller Seeley. How are you and Catherine? I'm doing fine. Happy July. So thank you, thank you. We we were just checking in on everybody's July to say how whatever he did on the fourth. It was just kind of cool on the fourth being able to, uh, for me, getting back together in a, a fairly large group of people and uh, you know without the masks and the whole thing. And it was just uh, it was a nice fireworks show I went to and it went well. Uh, Vincent. How are you doing? Hello. Doing great. Doing great. Good to be back. Ready to go. All right. Well, uh, what's really cool here that I'm really excited about is uh, an episode that that we'd skipped over because uh, it wasn't available, became available. So now we can uh, revisit that episode. And it's from uh, March 10th, 1946. And uh Let's talk about that episode. We we know definitely noticed some differences between the episodes we've been listening to re- recently and that episode, and then we'll get into particulars of it. Vincent, why don't you take us through it first? So, what did you? Yeah. So as we were talking about, um, you know, I wasn't on the, um, the podcast before, and so I hadn't really listened to these. But Wells seemed to have this sort of excited energy that appears to be gone uh, you know we're currently in the middle of july early july and i i didn't notice that at all and he seems really eager and excited to be here um and i think part of that of course is what he has going on in comparison to what he has later right now i mean wells always has stuff going on but it's certainly not as much he had just finished a couple months ago a movie um called tomorrow is forever which was a um premiering there it has natalie wood and Claudette Colbert in it, um, Around the World, which of course he becomes uh, obsessed with, I think is the correct word to use, uh, in about a month, is just sort of starting up in pre-production. Um, it had just got announced in newspapers a couple days before this. And in fact, his um, first big um, uh, sponsor gets uh, announced, Alexander Corda, um, a film producer from britain mostly um so that's heating up but i think wells is full energy is in this he doesn't really have much on the radio going on um and i think what's interesting about this episode is you know just that he 
sets up some of the sort of political issues that he mentions throughout the rest of the uh, series that we've been talking about. Excellent. Uh, Terry, what were your, what did you notice on the episode? Well, the first thing I want to say is that we have to keep uh, in mind the, the context of the times. This is uh, 1946, so the Second World War is still very fresh in people's minds. But um, not everything was about directly about the war. Uh, that said, uh, the thing that caught my ear was uh, Wells talking about uh, the conflict in Crimea. And uh, of course, today we think of Crimea as being a, a flashpoint between um, Russia and uh, the West with respect to, um, to Ukraine, since Crimea is officially today part of Ukraine. But at the time of this commentary, Crimea was part of the Soviet Union. And while it is true that uh, eventually Crimea did become part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, that was uh, after the events that, uh, that Wells is referring to. And at this moment, the thing that was interesting about Crimea was that there were a lot of um, prisoners uh, from the Second World War, Nazi um, um, collaborators who had been deported. And so the, uh, the interest in Crimea had nothing to do with who owned it, but who was being held there. And so it's, uh, it was interesting to me that uh, this was, by today's standards, a, a footnote in history, but in um, March of 1946, kind of a big deal. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, I'll, I'll jump in on uh, what Vincent said, too, and the fact that, that Vincent, for the first time, gets to join us for one that's sponsored by Lear Radio, I think, when he joined us, Lear had had gone away, and what's what's amazing to me is just um, how much he had sort of changed over the time. And this is only what four than we are now. So, so it's it's interesting how much his show has kind of changed his direction. Um, and he he covered certainly a lot of ground on uh, this episode, but. Uh, it's, it's fun to hear the Lear folks again talking about how you can tape yeah. shows. And I still don't understand how that works. Uh, you can tape it and listen to it instantly. You don't have to rewind. And I'm like, how would that work? But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, always, I keep on wanting to know more about this technology, this miracle technology where they can tape their shows and tape your family members and listen to what they have to say. <laughs> Never rewind. It's like, wow, that sounds like a great tape system. I want that. It's got to be... A Terry, is that recording on a wire? How does that work? I think it was, uh, they said, said it was tape. And I. so I think it was like, uh, well, they're no longer in use, uh, but we had, um, when I was working in radio, we had these things called cart machines, which were like like eight-track tapes. Uh, oh, it was okay. on an endless loop. So uh, it would record, and then you, you didn't have to rewind because it just kept going in the same direction. You could push a fast-forward button, and it would queue up to the beginning of the recording. It would record a, a cue. And so for radio, especially for recording commercials, or, or even as we used it um, when I worked in radio for, uh, for news stories, uh, you would record it yeah. on the cart, put it in the machine, push the button but when it was ready to go. I think sure, but this probably is something pretty, like that. It was pretty revolutionary in 1946. I understand. And um, oh, yeah. uh, Bing Crosby, um, uh, 
uh, invested in maybe it's Bell and Howell or one of these companies that um, they found that the Germans had developed the technology during the war and uh, people and allies listening in on German broadcasts were um, amazed and confused at what sounded like huge symphony concerts and live audiences. And it turns out the Germans were using tape recordings of things that and claiming they were live. <laughs> and so, um, but Bing was especially interested in this new technology because he uh, was lazy and he didn't want to show up to his um, uh, broadcast where he was just singing and he, he was tired of having to do them live. And so he was such a big star. He was the first to demand that he could be recorded ahead of time and just play his show recorded. Um, so, as I said, um, in 1946, this was big news. The first time, I guess, that um, people at home could record something. Uh, but it would soon revolutionize the, uh, the industry for what it's worth. Right. Well, and, the, and folks at the time, the critics and things were saying, oh, well, they could tell the difference in sound quality. It wasn't as good right. as, as it was yeah. when it was live and so forth. But I listened to those shows, and they're, they're beautiful sounding. I mean, there's... Yeah. They were just trying to put up some resistance, but it, it all, they could tell it was going to go his way and it did. And the whole yeah. industry changed and, and became yeah. where most shows were transcribed and presented at a more convenient time. Yeah, more convenient time. <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to contribute that I was really interested in the sort of a name dropping and name shaming that Orson was doing here, showing his politics. Um, and again, um, the difference of being in 1946 versus how a teacher of time, we tend to look back on 1946. I believe that it was um, because um, Orson mentions that Churchill was in Missouri talking. Yep. And I have a feeling this was when he did the Iron Curtain speech. It is 100 percent. It fascinated I, I, me that that Orson didn't mention Iron Curtain because that's you know, history books teach you that's what it's all about. And so I loved that um, uh, for a man with a good ear for language, that um, it was not necessarily that important to him at the time. Um, I was very amused that um, he was throwing a lot of shade at Herbert Hoover, who uh, sort of has come down to us in history as being sort of this saintly man, almost a Jimmy Carter, if you will of a, uh, a president um, whose reputation was being uh, restored by being this guy who's gonna bring food to the starving in Europe. And I, um, I'm amused with Orson saying, don't feed those Germans, feed the victims, don't feed the Germans. And of course, then the Marshall Plan would uh, 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 soon come in in these terrible winters, these, these years when so many people were starving. And indeed the whole plan was to feed the Germans and to feed the Japanese um, to turn our, um, our, our, our um, uh, enemies into allies through being nice to them rather than further um, punishing them. But as I said, I, I'm always amused that in the heat of it in early 1946, uh, Orson, doesn't agree. <laughs> yeah, no. Kathy, I, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, so Daryl, you mentioned a lot had changed, but, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, in the most political sections of this, Wells stays completely consistent over these four months. I mean, the one thing, the first is, of course, hunger relief. Wells's belief that to create stability, you need to, you know, basically feed Europe. I was surprised that he's basically like, 
you know, don't feed the Germans, uh, which I thought was amusing. Um, but, you know, it's certainly consistent with his beliefs and what which get um, put into the Marshall Plan. Though I think, Kathy, to really understand his um, his beef with Churchill and also the fact why he doesn't mention the Iron Curtain is because at this point, Wells does not agree with Churchill. I mean, um, Wells, right. uh, you know, certainly uh, believes, he even says Churchill is a great man, but he seems yeah. happy that Churchill gets ousted. Um, yeah. And the main reason is because Churchill is against uh, the Soviet Union. He believes that right. the United yeah. States, you know, need, and, and UK needs to, um, you know, a, stop the Iron Curtain, essentially. And so Wells, at this point, is quite sympathetic to uh, the Soviet Union, certainly to communism, though yeah. he becomes more weary of it. And so I think it's really telling that he calls him out. I will say, though, that I think Wells, of course, uh, history was not kind to Wells' belief um, or pure sympathy towards uh, the Soviet Union. And actually, later in the 50s, maybe 60s, it's undated, Wells was going to make a, a film which he called... Um, what was it called? It was called Great Leaders, aka Brittle Glory, in which it was mostly going to be about Churchill and the great leader of Churchill. There were other leaders too. I mean, not even ones that he respected. There's also like Lenin, Mussolini, Stalin. It was like an anthology film of different leaders. But most of the research, I mean, like almost 500 pages were on Churchill and his chronology and everything like that. And so I think Wells would come to sort of eat his words, um, although he didn't spend too much time on Churchill's speech. He basically said he just shouldn't have given it. Um, And so, yeah. Vince, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things I found interesting about Wells' positions uh, throughout these commentaries is that he was able to do the thing that very few political figures could do then and can do now, which is to hold conflicting views on the same topic. He, mm. he had nuanced positions on things. It wasn't black and white at all. It wasn't common, uh, certainly not uh, commonplace for the time. But it was it was curious to, to kind of watch his mind work through these commentaries. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think folks will enjoy jumping back to this one and, and seeing compare and contrast between where he's at now and where he was four months ago. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting too, how the whole don't feed the Germans thing um, and him supporting the Soviet Union, how that would sort of um, reverberate today in a different, I mean, no one could predict at that time, which way things were going to go, but, mm-hmm. but Japan and, and helping Japan out and helping Germany out uh, kind of, neutralize them in a lot of ways for the years that would come in the future they they've both um why not necessarily being complete allies to us all the time they were certainly have not been against us and certainly have been just in their own um helping their own countries to get better and better and better right and you're absolutely right daryl and i don't want this to go on but it's so different from the um ending the the uh, peace accords or the um fallout of world war one where uh, uh, Britain and France punished Germany so much, took away their um, mm-hmm. you know, territories and industrial centers and things like that, and just sort of, in a way, set up the next, you know, I mean, yep. uh, the conditions that made Hitler such a, um, uh, um, um, a popular voice. So here was an attempt to, um, uh, to try a, a different solution. Right. I'd just like right. to also mention, um, I just uh, interesting, his letter from another woman, the poor woman on uh, Signal Mountain in Tennessee. Um, yep. 
it's it's more a sort of atmospheric emotional letter about just sort of people poverty struggling getting her man a job um and given that the other the in july we're going to have yet another letter from a woman it really is interesting to me that he's um uh, using women's voices in his uh, yep. in the letters, yep. he uh, reads out that um, s- such a large percentage. Yep. Yeah, what? And so often he, he says the same thing. He's, he says like, basically, I don't know how to comment on this or what to say about this, but I'm sending you a radio. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but this one, this one plays a different role. I mean, I think later he uses a lot of these um, women letters as sort of rhetorical devices, albeit sympathetic. I mean, there's maybe a little bit of that, but I do think that there's a personal connection here. One is she um, specifically mentions like, oh, I hope the radio will give him something to focus on. But I think also, you know, if, if, um, if anybody's ever witnessed alcoholism in their own family, you see, you know, uh, some really tough parts of this letter, you know, this woman trying to desperately separate uh, her husband uh, as a person from the disease in which he's afflicted with. And Wells saw this in his own family. Um, his father was an al- alcoholic and died very early. Um, his mother also died very early, which left him in the care and had to be in a caretaker. But um, I think Wells has seen this before. And I do think that's one of the reasons he brings us up and does not use it in as sort of argumentative of a fashion as he does later. Agreed. Yeah, truly interesting. Well, does anyone else have anything on this episode before we head out? Um, one one quick thing, Daryl. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kathy. No, no, I just love that we talk longer than the episode is. <laughs> like, this is about poetry and things like that. I will tell you this. I've had no complaints at all about how long we, we talk. They, they like our introductions. They think they give context to the shows. And I think they do. I think it makes it where when you listen to us talk and then you listen to the show, you go, oh, okay, this all kind of makes sense. Whereas I don't know the modern listener, if they would all, it just depends on how steeped you are in history and things, but having all you historians to, to talk to us and explain things to us, I think it's great. Anyway, Vincent, you were going to say something else. Before. Yeah. I was just going to say to end on a hopefully positive note, I looked up the Valley in which uh, she hopes to live Dogwood Valley. Um, and it was beautiful and it is beautiful now. Um, I hope, I hope it worked out for her. Uh, you know, I know she had her doubts in the letter, but if she did, uh, her family is rich with property because only nice houses are in Dogwood Valley now. Um, and so I, I hope, I hope it worked out. They didn't give enough information for us to look her up, but, um, you know, here's to hoping for class mobility. That's what yeah, I can say. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I, I will throw it to us since we were mentioning the show and the intros and all of that. Um, we did receive our first like negative response from, from someone just saying that um, the, the, the political side of it, that, that we get a little too much into the politics or whatever, and it seems one-sided to them and so forth. Um, I'd say it's difficult to present a two-sided view of things in that Orson was so left in his thinking and so liberal um and i cannot see how we can cover these without talking politics and things i i do i think do a really good job of keeping politics out of most of my other podcasts um certainly unless it's right in your face in that episode um 
you know, uh, Jack Benny is talking to some world leader or something that we have to mention. But other than that, I, I, I keep them pretty uh, clean with politics. And I get it. I mean, there, there are two sides to everything. Um, but for this particular show, I just take off all those kid gloves and go, let's just get in there and talk about it. And uh, we say what we say. And so. And uh, Daryl, you know, 75 years from now, 100 years from now, people will listen to these and they'll say, gee, was it really so political back then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> well, and then as I often say to my listeners, you know what? If you're if you don't feel like listening to our intro or whatever, the fast forward button is your friend. At least listen to what Orson has to say. So there you go. And we'll see everybody next time. I'm glad we found this episode. So that's fantastic. Hello, this is Orson Welles speaking. Harry Truman didn't know the gun was loaded. That's what he says. He thought Winston Churchill was going to talk about the weather or something, so he took him down to Fulton, Missouri, and sat with him on the platform all during his speech, which was right polite of him. How is he to guess that one of the founding fathers of the United Nations was going to open up on the United Nations organization? Now we're told that the ex-vice president didn't know what the ex-prime minister was going to say, and in London, Mr. Bevan is claiming he didn't know about it either. By the way, Bevan's in for a rough time tomorrow morning. A terrific row is brewing inside his own party, and Labor MPs are going to stand up in the House of Commons Monday and ask him a number of very embarrassing questions. An excellent source wires me a rumor from London that it was Churchill who persuaded Attlee to appoint Bevan, and a laborite was heard to say this week that Bevan stands with one foot in the Crimean Conference and the other in Crimean War. Everybody says they don't want war, and everybody's behaving as though they don't want peace. More of that in just a minute. If you should ask an aviator what the name Lear, L-E-A-R, means to him, he would immediately say, radio. Well, that's because Lear, for 16 years, has put all its radio skill into the manufacture of radios for aircraft. And it's easy to realize what kind of radios these have to be. Keen, dependable, and right up to the very last minute. Before long, you'll be able to have a Lear radio for your home. For Lear is now building home radios, putting into them... All the ingenuity and skill that for 16 years made Lear radios famous with flyers and earned the reputation that Lear is the name men fly by. Here are some of the features you will find in Lear home radios. Television, worldwide shortwave, FM, remote control tuning, which lets you select your stations from your easy chair. Lear home radios will also have something that radios have never had before, tape recording. I'll tell you more about this later on. Now back to Orson Welles. The international pot is boiling over on the question of Soviet troops in the north of China and the north of Iran. There is an argument that says Russia is just looking out for itself according to the current standards of international morality, that you must blame the current standards for the unpleasant fact that the Soviet Union, by not pulling out of Iran on schedule, has for the first time broken a treaty. Moscow says Russian troops will be out of North China not a day later than American troops. And officials of our own government returned from North China recently have stated off the record that only 12,000 Marines are repatriating Japanese soldiers, which is all we're supposed to do. What about the other 38,000 American soldiers and Marines now in China? What are they doing? Where are they going? 
says Jimmy Burns, changing the subject, quote, no power has a right to help itself to alleged enemy properties in liberated or ex-satellite countries before settlement has been agreed upon by the Allies, unquote. And if you can't read the words Manchuria and loot between those lines, you need glasses. Says Russia, the anti-Russian demonstrations by the Chinese are a frame-up. Says China, says you. Whatever the facts, our press has certainly given much more space to these parades than to the bigger, better news of military accord achieved last week after 18 years of virtual civil war between the government armies of Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese communists. They've agreed to a gradual but real merger, and if the world behaves itself, that means peace. If the world behaves itself, what does that mean? Yes, Mr. Stalin, it means keeping our word and living by the laws we make. No, Mr. Churchill, it does not mean saving the British Empire by going to war with the Soviet Union. Of course, there's an argument, too, that says it's all Russia's fault. Russia has this mad fear of encirclement, this crazy notion that the Western democracies are ganging up on her. So Winnie comes right out and says, by all means, let's gang up on Russia. By Friday, his companion on the Missouri jaunt had managed to indicate a little statesmanlike embarrassment. Certainly, Mr. Truman did not become the president of the United States to preside over the liquidation of the United Nations. This is a funny world, and this has been a funny week. Old Tory Churchill still seems to be directing foreign policy for the Labour government that pushed him out of power. And Herbert Hoover, who, like Churchill, was repudiated by the voters of his own country, the same old Hoover of the apple stands, has been called upon to feed Europe. Question. Mr. Wells, what's wrong with Churchill and Hoover? Hoover's supposed to have done a good job on food after the last war, and as for Churchill, what he did for Britain during this war is a matter of record. Answer. There's nothing wrong with Mr. Hoover or Mr. Churchill that a good election didn't cure. During the Battle of Britain, Churchill was a very, very great man. Just now, I wish he'd paint more pictures and make less speeches. And as to Mr. Hoover, well, he's not outstandingly popular in his own country. And as a symbol of that country, he won't be welcomed in Europe. After World War I, Mr. Hoover led the fight to feed Germany, denouncing France and other nations for wanting to get food first. This time, I hope he'll put Germany where she belongs, at the end of the line. What food is available should go by moral right to Hitler's victims, not to the people who made Hitler possible. If anybody must starve, let it be those who brought starvation to Europe. America, you know, is the only considerable landmass to remain exempt from the direct ravages of the world's most frightful war and is also the only important agricultural area to enjoy a good harvest this year. We escaped the blight as well as the blitz. We have neither ruined cities nor ruined crops. We produced 1,123,000,000 bushels of wheat last year. It was a record. Question. How much wheat can we use normally at home? Answer. A little over 700 million bushels annually. Question. How much is sought for European relief? Answer. 200 million bushels for the next six months. Question. What does that leave? Answer. It leaves a comfortable margin of 213 million bushels for sale to the people who could buy it. We're told that millions of tons of wheat are disappearing because of a boxcar shortage. We're told that farmers are withholding grain because they're in doubt about future price ceilings. They're grievous charges, if true, but they don't alter the fact that millions of people in Europe are starving to death. Our government can't pretend to be surprised. The Office of War Information said five and a half months ago today, quote, Imports of food variously estimated at from 10 million to 12 million tons will be required in the next year to augment supplies in the liberated countries. Unless food is imported, the outlook for the coming winter is one of appalling hunger, unquote. Our government issued that statement at the same moment that many classes of food here were being released from the ration lists. Now there's a crisis. I've been asking government people why nothing was done in advance. Why, they say? 
because everything here in Washington is being done on a day-to-day basis, from the top to the bottom, and that problem wasn't labeled today. Last year, the agricultural subsidies were so arranged the price ratio of hogs to corn that it paid a farmer more to feed his grain to cattle than to sell it for human consumption. This was the result of a loud and politically potent urging by the meat and cattlemen's lobbies. By December, Mr. Clinton D. Anderson, who was our Secretary of Agriculture, had started in to worry about wheat. Mr. Anderson was saying privately that even if the allocations for Europe could be met, and this seemed most unlikely because of insufficient transportation, it still wouldn't be enough for Europe's basic needs. September, November, the days dwindled down to a precious few. By the first week of February, President Truman offered a nine-point food program based on voluntary rationing. Now, President Wilson, after the last war, also called for voluntary rationing and, under Herbert Hoover, because Congress wouldn't make it compulsory politics. That was then as now. It seems this is an election year. It seems we can't expect the congressmen to ask the voters to get along without anything so important as French pastry in the interests of anything so unimportant as the French people. The tragic truth is that even if voluntary rationing is a total success, if we cut down on all the bread, wheat products, and fats and oils, the saving will just barely keep Europe alive on a minimum of less than 2,000 calories a day. The weak and old and very young may not even be able to survive at all on this diet. It just isn't enough fuel to fire up the human furnace to get the human machinery going productively. A shattered people cannot rebuild a shattered world on 2,000 calories. Of course, our American sacrifices will be excruciating. Our bread not, may not be gray or black or brown, but it will be an almost perceptible off-white. And just think of it, we're going to have to get along in the same amount of beer we used in 1941. And the chairman of the Famine Emergency Committee is Mr. Herbert Hoover. Question, what's his job? Answer, to appeal dramatically to the imagination of the American people. Mr. Hoover departs in a few days for a month's tour of the continent to personally view the starvation everybody knows is there. Officials admit this won't result in any new knowledge, merely publicity. Question, why should we feed Europe? Answer, because Europe is hungry, and hunger is a cause of war, and we want peace. Food will do more to build the peace than a meeting in London or the Bronx. And if we're afraid of Soviet expansion and the growing prestige of communism on the continent, food will do more to check it than a speech in Missouri. Now, your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Now, let me tell you a little about the Lear tape recorder, which will be a part of Lear home radios. With a snap of a switch, you can record anything you like. An entire radio program right off the air. The voices of friends, the cute songs and sayings of children. And as soon as you've made the recording, you can play it right back. Not even a delay for rewinding. And anything you don't want, you can whisk away simply by recording something else in its place. With all these features, tape recording, FM, television, remote tuning control, and short wave, you might think a Lear must be an expensive radio. But actually, a Lear radio phonograph console combination with every one of these features included will cost you only about $500. And a particularly attractive chairside console with fine radio and automatic record player will be about $125. Down at the end of the list, you can get a handsome, capable table model for $19.95. So keep your eye out for the new home radios by Lear. L-E-A-R. Your dealer will have them soon. Now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated. 
Dear Mr. Wells, you said for folks to write you a letter that you thought you could use them. What do you want me to write about? I can write about myself. After all, individual humans are the most interesting things in the world, and marriage is an interesting subject. So I'll tell you about mine and what I'm doing today. I live high on a mountaintop in a tiny three-room house. Today I'm rubbing out a batch of dirty clothes in the tiny combination living, eating, and sleeping room. We sure are crowded in here. Outside it's raining and gray and trying to freeze. My two babies are two and three years old. They feel pretty cross as the monkey heater keeps the room too hot sometimes while an icy draft steals across the floor. Hence, all our noses are running. My back hurts awful as I'm going to have me a new baby before long. It's in my way as I bend over the homemade tub and as I rub out the slick black garage work clothes my man wears. The whole situation gnaws on my heavily loaded nerves and I cry and sometimes scream angrily at my babies and my nine-year-old stepson. But not at my man. He is quiet and good and he worships us all. But upon my shoulders is another tragic burden, whiskey. He fights it. He hates it. He works all week, and on the weekends, his poor nerves crave it, so he takes some which makes our Saturdays and Sundays a bleak, unhappy thing. He sent off after a treatment, but it never come. You reckon why? He loves the radio, usually wants one besides his bed where he'll play at night or day. If I get one, it'll be his alone. We hope to have a white cottage someday, new. He's a good carpenter, and I bought three acres of land before I married four years ago, paying for it at $4 a month. I was keeping house for folks at $3 a week, and it took me one whole year to pay for it. I was an old maid, so I guess that's why having babies hurts me so. I'm too old, but they are precious. Before I married, I tried every way to find a child to keep for my own, but they would not let me because I was not married, nor had no home to keep a child in. My hungry, plump arms would have been sufficient. But I hope I won't have another baby after this one. And I hope this one's a girl, as my two stepdaughters both run away. One to marry a strange soldier, the other to live with their dead mama's folks down in South Georgia. Mr. Wells, you ought to see my valley where we aim on building our cottage. It's Dogwood Valley at a tiny county seat in Green Hills, 19 miles from Chattanooga on a concrete highway. Cherokee roses and wild primroses cover it in the beautiful spring. 30 miles from here. Here we pay $8 a month rent. God wills we'll go back and live in Dogwood Valley. Happy. But my man must have the dark veil lifted from his life before we do. How long? Only God knows, if ever. Meanwhile, I'm an exile from home. And my heart aches so. Sincerely. Ladies and gentlemen, to the lady who wrote me this letter, who lives on Signal Mount, Tennessee, goes a five-tubular radio. Without comment, with our sincerest good wishes. Now my time's up. Thanks for letting me come to call. Let me join you next week at the same time. Till then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company.